0: language and culture.
1: Salve amantes da língua inglesa! Meu nome é Carlos Augusto e hoje vocês vão ter um episódio um pouco diferente do Language and Culture. É uma entrevista, mas é uma entrevista com o autor de um livro sobre rock, o Christopher P. Hilton. Ele escreveu o livro The Rise, Fall and Rebirth of Hair Metal. E eu entrevistei ele tem um tempinho atrás. Inclusive essa entrevista foi que me deu a ideia de criar esse podcast, né? Foi uma das coisas que eu fiz que me deram a ideia de criar um podcast em que eu conversasse com pessoas que têm o inglês no seu dia a dia ou na sua profissão. E o Christopher, como ele é de Charlotte, na Carolina do Norte, nos Estados Unidos, ele escreveu esse livro de um assunto que me interessa muito, né? E então eu resolvi entrevistá-lo para uma matéria pro Crazy Metal Mind, né? Que é o site, o podcast que eu também participo. E aí eu aproveitei o áudio dessa entrevista e transformei nesse episódio. É possível que o áudio não esteja perfeito, principalmente a minha parte, porque foi a primeira vez que eu gravei e eu não estava ainda com a intenção de transformar isso num episódio de podcast, mas vai ser bem legal para vocês ouvirem um nativo falando, a parte do Christopher tá com um som melhor, então acho que vai ser bem proveitoso e me ouvindo falando um pouco inglês também é, o inglês é, que a gente fala aqui no Brasil, então é legal que vocês vão poder fazer essa comparação aí e daquilo que eu chamo que é uh, o inglês como uma língua global, né? que os especialistas e estudiosos chamam então vai ser legal que é um brasileiro falando inglês, conversando com um americano falando na sua língua nativa. Então aproveitem a entrevista com Christopher P. Hilton Sobre o livro dele de Hair Meadow. Language and Culture.
0: So a great initiative you had to, to write this book. What caught my attention from the beginning was the name The Rise, fall, and Rebirth of Hair Meadow, which is a great name. Uh, because it, 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 it's so uh, uh, composed, maybe like some of the music that the band's made. Uh, and, and, and as I, I showed you uh, one of the questions about the chronology, because I think it was a, a good way to show what you intended to do, which was the rise, the fall, and the rebirth. So, if you please, could uh, tell about why did you choose this this kind of uh, way of, of telling the story? It would be
2: cool. Yeah, certainly. Hey, first of all, just wanted to thank you for your interest in the book. I'm really happy that uh, you enjoyed it. Um, you know, as far as the, the title and the way I approach the uh, chronological format, um, you know, I really wanted the book to be more than just a collection of, of individual stories about individual bands and albums. Uh, there's already a lot of that out there, right? And you've read some of these books too, I'm sure. You know, you can read biographies, uh, yes. you know, on Guns of Roses or you can read Slash's autobiography or Sebastian Bach's uh, or Steven Tyler's. And and they're all great books. Um, but I, I think what hadn't been told before is really the story of the genre as a whole. And I think it's really an interesting piece, you know, not only for fans of music, but really, uh, you know, fans of any good story. And that there's a real three part arc to the genre. You know, there's this. Incredible rise to commercial dominance uh, in the 80s, and, and you know, really at its peak in the late 80s and early 90s, and then this, you know, mind-blowingly sudden and total fall from grace, uh, almost extinction during the mid 90s, all the way through a legitimate rebirth of sorts in the new millennium. Uh, so it really only made sense to tell the story chronologically because almost all of the bands were experiencing the same situation as they moved through time together. Uh, you know, every couple of years brought a different change to the genre. You know, the the early beginnings, uh, you know, Slippery and Wet in 1986 kind of really blew the doors off uh, for commercial acceptance of the genre. And then by 1988, you know, you looked at the top 10 list on top 40 radio and you had Poison, Def Leppard, and Bon Jovi all in the top 10 on radio. Uh, You know, even today, we can't even imagine that that was possibly true at one point in time. Um, And then, of course, with the rise of grunge and the fall and bands changed their sound in the mid-90s, Um, And then bands return to that sound as we hit the new millennium all the way up to, you know, all kinds of new hair metal acts today, especially coming from overseas, specifically in the Nordics. Um, So I wanted to tell the the story of the genre, not just a story about a bunch of bands.
0: Yes, because hair metal today is better than grunge uh, in popularity,
2: I mean. Yeah, I do think that's interesting, right? I mean, if you asked any of these bands back in the 80s, uh, you know, they probably wouldn't predicted they'd be still around touring uh, almost 40 years later. Uh, And for a genre that was so derided after its peak uh, versus uh, the huge popularity that grunge had in the 90s, to your point, uh, the grunge bands, for the most part, aren't around anymore. Uh, You could probably find 75% of the bands in the 80s in this particular style of music are are still out there and actively touring. Now, maybe they don't have the full original lineup, uh, but you don't see a lot of grunge bands still touring. So, you know if the the contest was uh you know which style of music would stand the test of time uh, at least so far it would seem that that hair metal has certainly some legitimacy or at least some staying power to it uh, that perhaps grunge does not it's an interesting observation the the genre is is very alive isn't it yeah i think it is for the most part uh you know uh, you know we talk about the rebirth of hair metal a lot uh, some people that are more casual fans looked at the book's cover And they said, well, I remember the fall and I remember uh, the rise for sure, but I don't really know what you're talking about with this rebirth. Uh, Hmm. And so I understand that. uh, But, you know, the fact of the matter was in the middle of the 90s, I mean, the genre was basically dead. Now, that's not to say the bands weren't active and doing things because the real fans know they certainly were. But commercially, uh, the genre was just about extinct. Uh, You know, whereas you get to a place like now, uh, you know, I'm sure you're aware uh, before the pandemic hit, uh, Motley Crue and Poison and Def Leppard yeah. were about to embark on what they called the stadium tour, uh,
1: mm-hmm. you know, and they
2: had a string of dates lined up that would pull in, you know, anywhere from 75,000 to 90,000 fans at a stop. Uh, and these are three bands that, you know, as wonderful as I think they are in the mid 90s, you know, that they couldn't have sold out you know, my local bar down the street, really. And that's an exaggeration, (laughs) but you get the point. Uh, So there has definitely been a rebirth, uh, especially as you look towards the early 90s, right? A lot of these bands got back together to tour. Uh, You know, grunge was basically over. Uh, There were a lot of reunions. There were these package tours in the United States where bands would team up together and and could fill a larger capacity playhouse. Uh, You know, uh, popular television shows like Behind the Music came about. Uh, bands reunited they returned to some of their more popular sounds Uh, so in the mid-90s you know these most popular bands like Def Leppard did the slang album in 1996 didn't sound like hysteria or pyromania you know it almost sounded alternative or grungy even in some places Uh, people didn't like it personally I loved it Uh, but uh, you know Motley Crue did a very heavy unhair metal sounding album in 1994 their self-titled album Again, Mm -hmm. didn't do well because, uh, you know, one, it didn't have Vince Neil, which a lot of people couldn't accept. And, you know, people just weren't turned on to that style of music. Again, I really appreciated it. But they also did an album in the late 90s uh, called Generation Swine, uh, which I don't think anybody liked. Uh, No offense to Motley Crue. Um, But but the point is, as you you went to 2000, right, Def Leppard returned to the sound that made them famous. Uh, Euphoria sounded a lot like Adrenalize. Uh, And, you know, the Promises signal... Single was very melodic and commercial. And Motley Crue tried to get back to the roots with New Tattoo uh, as opposed to the more experimental stuff they did in the 90s. Bon Jovi issued uh, the Crush album, which introduced them to really a whole new legion of fans. And they had the It's My Life single, which was one of the biggest singles in the world that year. And, and Poison went out for two successful tours and got back together with their guitarists. So, yeah, a lot of things happened around the beginning. And to your point, when we talk about nostalgia, um, you know, for the casual fan, and that's, let's face it, 80 to 90% of the fans that existed back in the 80s are, are probably more casual in nature. Um, you know, the type of music meant a lot to so many people that grew up on it. Uh, you know, being a fan of hard rock and heavy metal in the 80s was kind of like being a member of an exclusive society, right? A, a, a grouping where all people could come together for a shared interest and feel like they belonged and they and they shared a common, you know, rallying cry. Um, And without a doubt, you know, the amazing spectacle of the bands at the time and the the big anthem-based nature of the music, it was a huge part of the allure. And the universal appeal may have been whatever it was at the time, the the big guitars, the catchy hooks, the big vocals, the flashiness, the fashion, the lifestyle, or or just the whole over-the-top extravaganza of the whole thing. Uh, But I think the enduring appeal is what you mentioned. It's the nostalgia, right? People uh, enjoyed this music when they were young in their 20s. Uh, and you know now we're not so young. <laughs> we're in our 40s and 50s, and, and some of us are even older. Uh, and you know you have a desire to revisit the glory days of your youth, uh, and oftentimes you have a desire to, you know, a continued need for that natural sense of escapism that the music provides. Um, so people do have a strong nostalgia for it, and you know they might not be out there following the bands every day, and they might not still be buying albums, uh, you know, <laughs> to the extent albums even exist anymore. Uh, but they're certainly up for a Friday night or a Saturday night, uh, you know, outdoor show with a band that meant a lot to them in their youth. And they hear some songs that they can sing along to and kind of feel young again. And so a lot of it is nostalgia. Now for fans like myself, uh, we greatly appreciate the new material as well. And we look forward to it and we're excited about it. Um, but in the United States, uh, you know, if you go see a Def Leppard show or a poison show or a Motley Crue show, uh, you know, they're going to play, 12 to 15 songs and uh, you know 14 out of those 15 songs are going to be the things that made them popular in the eighties. Uh, now, again, the diehard fans like myself and some others would give anything to hear, you know, some new material or some deep cuts, but uh, for the casual fans, which is 90% of the people in the audience, that's really just an excuse for them to go use the restroom, right? <laughs> They're there yes. to hear uh, the songs off Pyromania, not the songs off Def, Le- Def Leppard self titled album in 2015, which was a great album. Uh, but, you know, fair enough, I think these bands understand that they still have a creativity and a viability that is strong, um, but they're also playing to their audience right and if their audience is there for a nostalgia evening, you know some of the bands are happy to you know pander to that, others of them you know may want to represent more and aspire to be more, but At the same time, they're aware of the reality of the situation.
0: Something that you mentioned in your book, which always uh, bothered me, was the Open Up and Say Yeah album from Poison, because the sound is so, so, so weak, and the music is so good, and i always (laughs) felt frustrated about it. And I said, oh my God, Christopher felt the same as me. And then these bands now, they have very good sound, so... But on the other side, they are doing uh, essentially what everybody has already done. So there is this, this uh, paradox, I think. Uh, what do you think about these newer bands?
2: Well, I mean, first of all, from a technology standpoint, uh, you're right. And it's a double-edged sword. Uh, it's, it's interesting that uh, you mentioned Open Up and Say Ah. For those that don't know, uh, that was the very first rock album to be recorded completely digitally. And this was in mm-hmm. 1988. So you know, This is emerging technology in 1988. Um, and you know, all digitally had its advantages and it was exciting technology, but you're right, it sounded very sterile in some places and very thin and very processed. Um, the producer for that album, Tom Werman, uh, he's had over 20 gold and platinum albums. Uh, he's done uh, production for albums for Molly Crew, for Twisted Sister, um, who else? Cheap Trick, Boston, Blue Oyster Cult. Um, so, you know, well, well established. And, you know, if you ask him today, I've read interviews with him. He hated the sound of open up and stay on. (laughs) Right. I mean, but the thing was for the time, it it wasn't noticeable as something like that. Right. Nobody in 1988 had the record come out and say, Hey, it sounds thin. Uh, Today you can notice it just because things have gotten so much better. Um, but the thing was music, at least rock music in the eighties, wasn't really heavy most of it on the bottom end anyway it was really focused on the vocals and the guitars uh and then you had this digital production come about um and there were albums like that right at the same time uh van halen's 5150 and ou812 like you said great songs but those are thin sounding albums right it's hard to is there any bass on those albums at all i don't know, right of course there is but it's tough to hear or even, you know, the more pop bands, you know, ZZ Top's Afterburner record or Billy Idol's Whip Plash Smile, uh, mid Mm eighties. It's hard to hear any bottom end. And then the trend got exacerbated when we moved from albums to cassettes to CDs in the early nineties. The original technology to transfer music from analog to CD, from tape to CD in the early nineties wasn't all that impressive. And it resulted in a very, very bright sounding recording that only made the record sound thinner. Uh, There was none of the warmth or bottom end you would find on vinyl. Uh, Now some of that's been corrected in recent years because bands and record companies put out these remasters and some of them replaced some of that that bottom end but much of it is just made worse because of what they call these loudness wars where they just raise the volume on our parts of the mix and erase any of the dynamic range and separation among the instruments just because they want the music to be louder on whatever streaming platform people are listening to. Um, so I, I think you definitely had a, an aspect of that. Albums today don't really suffer from that, right? You can, you can get really good production with a strong dynamic range and a lot of bass and bottom end uh, much easier than you could at that time. But again, it's a double-edged sword. On one hand, a great album that would have cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to produce in the 80s can be produced for $15,000 to $20,000 today, right? A fraction of the cost due to the advancements of technology, And this results in a lot of great sounding albums. Uh, But on the other hand, you can make an album that sounds just acceptable today for only $1,000. So a lot of bands go that route, whereas in the 80s, you wouldn't have really anything that just sounded acceptable because you couldn't go into a studio and achieve that. Uh, If you were in a major studio, it all sounded terrific. And the other aspect is, you know, the ease of recording and file sharing. Uh, You know, on one hand, it's helpful because you know, these bands aren't young kids anymore and they're not 20 year olds living in an apartment all together uh, and partying all the time and writing songs together. They live in different places, they have families. And so it's not easy to be in the same place at the same time, Uh, but now they can record things on their phones and they can share their ideas over email or file transfers. And it's super convenient because they don't have to even be in a studio, but I think you really lose something that way sometimes. Uh, Take an appetite, uh, take an album like Appetite for Destruction, for example, uh, early Guns and Roses. All those songs were written the same way, uh, and it was all five of them. You know, someone would bring in a riff or a melody, and all five would jam on it. And they'd lend their ideas, and they came from very different backgrounds. Uh, you know, Duff McKagan had really a punk element. Uh, Steven Adler had, had more of a, uh, you know, a casual swing slash had that Aerosmith bluesy guitar base, and, and Axel came from this really, you know, Queen or Elton John inspired background. Uh, you know, of course, Izzy Stradlin brought you know a rhythm guitar that sounded more like the Rolling Stones or the Faces, and basically they put it all together, and you got a result that only the five of them could have created if they were in the same room. You don't often get that today. Uh, even when that band got to their usual illusion albums, uh, some of the magic was gone because the band members wrote songs in isolation and brought them in as kind of finished products for the other band members to play on, and it really lost some of that lightning in a bottle. So, I think the technology. It can help us and it can hurt us, for sure.
0: Also, uh, you mentioned in your book that uh, all bands are welcome. And I feel the same way. I, I think that hand is a genre that uh, usually uh, the hard, hardcore fans, they, they like almost all of the bands. I don't see this happening in other genres. Do you think it's, it's really different that we love so much this kind of music that we, we accept all, almost all of the bands that play it?
2: Well, I think, uh, you know, certainly people have different tastes and everyone has their favorite bands. Uh, but for the most part, you know, they're, they're attached to the genre and the styles that, that made that genre popular. Um, you know, in a lot of hair metal, I mean, as, you know, hardcore fans, we can look at it and we can pick it apart and say, okay, you know, White Lion was a very distinctly different band from Motley Crue, and Def mm-hmm. Leppard was a very distinctly different band from Guns N' Roses, or uh, you know, Slaughter, or, or even Poison. Uh, but the average fan, you know, it's all the same to them, right? So if, if you like one, you you probably like them all. Um, but you know, as far as people, you know, hanging on to the music or you know abandoning the music, um, you know, music, because a lot of people say, well you know, no one's into this anymore or, you know, the music died, people don't like it anymore. Um, and I think it's a few things related to that. Uh, you know, the first is that music tends to be a very important part of people's lives when we're younger, when we're teenagers, right? There's this saying that whatever music you liked when you were a teenager is the music you liked for the rest of your life. <laughs> and to an extent that's nice. true, uh, especially for people who grew up in the sixties, seventies, eighties, maybe even early nineties uh, with the younger generations today, not so much. Uh, Music is more disposable. It's not a big a part of uh, young people's lives. But back in the day, uh, you know, you had favorite bands and you you bought albums and you read liner notes and you hung posters in your room and you wore T-shirts and you talked about the music with your friends. Um, But as you get older, there's not as much room for that, you know, if any. You you get jobs, you get careers, you have families and you have kids. Uh, So a lot of people, you know, they let it go. And to your point, specific to this genre it was almost as much of a lifestyle as it was the music Uh, you know, it was about, uh, it was the classic sex drugs and rock and roll. It it was party time and it was easy to be into when you're in your twenties. It's not something you generally embrace as a rule when you age into your forties and fifties. So it is good to your point that we have all these new bands out there specifically coming from overseas and uh, for whatever reason, specifically in the Nordics uh, because it's easier to do. And to some extent it's more authentic, um, Nicky Six, his famous quote was, you know, hey, rock and roll doesn't age well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to an extent, that is true. Um, but I think the biggest thing in terms of people, you know, leaving the genre or abandoning it as the casual fan is, you know, you don't know it's out there. I mean, people latched onto this in the 80s because it was in their faces. It was mm-hmm. everywhere on MTV, it was everywhere on radio, uh, you know, and that helps an album like Hysteria sell more than 10 million copies. Uh, like I said, Def Leppard put out a great album in 2015. It sold 100,000, not 10 million, and I'll bet you nobody knows about it. You know, MTV yes. doesn't play the videos, uh, radio doesn't play the songs, and it's kind of like if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it. You yes, know, the Def Leppard record still makes sound in a lot of ways. It doesn't. <laughs> so yes. uh, there's a lot of things that go into it.
0: Uh, what's your relation with about Kiss? What do you think of their hair metal albums?
2: Um... Well, the first thing, you know, in terms of, you know, which bands are in the book and which ones aren't, uh, you know, I really wanted to make it as comprehensive as possible, right? Because it's a story about the genre. So it shouldn't be just about, you know, the platinum bands, et cetera. Um, But I got to tell you, the first draft of the book when I finished it was 800 pages. (laughs) It was ridiculous, Uh, you know, and the finished version, you have it. It's a little over 400 pages. And even that people told me was way too long. Uh, So I had to make some really hard choices, Uh, you know, and and a lot of the bands that could have been in there, you know, maybe I haven't met anyone who hasn't said, hey, I really would have liked it if you would have had more about this band, you know, because everyone's got their favorite. Um, So if it were up to me, it would have been 800 pages and there would have been uh, every band, but it just wasn't feasible. So, you know, uh, a lot of bands didn't get as much press as others, Uh, specifically when you talk about Kiss, uh, you know, I'm a Kiss fan for sure. Uh, you know but when people think about hair metal you generally think about bands that originated in the 80s Uh, now that's not to say that you shouldn't think about bands in the 70s because when you look at Kiss and Aerosmith and uh, Van Halen and Hanoi Rocks and the New York Dolls etc I mean even David Bowie or Alice Cooper these were the people that really had the first elements of hair metal in their music and if you ask any hair metal band from the 80s, or 99.9% of them, uh, you know, who their heroes are, one of the first words out of their mouth is going to be Kiss. Uh, So Kiss is extremely important to the genre. Uh, But, you know, the average fan doesn't really, when they think hair metal, they think Bon Jovi or Motley Crue or Guns N' Roses or Def Leppard or Poison or Rat or Whitesnake. Uh, You know, they really think of Kiss as more as a 70s band in general. But Kiss had a lot of stuff in the 80s that kind of conformed to the hair metal template. Um, I remember when they take the makeup off? It was, it was 1983 and they did Lick It Up, uh, Lick It Up as a single sounds a lot like hair metal, um, Heaven's on Fire, uh, Tears Are Falling from the Asylum album, to your point, um, even, uh, the Hot in the Shade album was at hair metal's peak, um, and that power ballad they had forever, that was just like a hair metal power ballad. My favorite Kiss record was 1992's Revenge. Uh, That Mm -hmm. was a little harder and darker. And that was kind of where hair metal was going at the time. You know, Skid Row put out slave to the grind and and guns roses did the usual illusion albums. Um, So, yeah, I mean, kiss is important to the genre Uh, for any kiss fans out there. You know, they may be disappointed that they don't get a lot of press in the book, uh, but it really tried to focus on the time periods of that rise, fall and rebirth. And, uh, you know, Kiss was really before that, originating in the '70s, and really rose to prominence by the mid or late '70s.
0: And uh, what about uh, Brazilian music? Do you know anything about? I, I, I'm not sure, but I think you mentioned Sepultura somewhere in your book. I'm not. I'm not sure, but but do you know anything about them?
2: Um, Yeah, I'm certainly familiar with Sepultura. Um, You know, they're more in the the heavy metal, thrash metal kind of genre. Um, And, you know, certainly I'm a fan of some of that music. Uh, I certainly listen to, uh, you know, Testament and some of the heavier Metallica stuff or any of that. You know, it certainly didn't fit the the scope of the book. um, Yes. Being too heavy. Uh, You know, I like Sepultura. You know, heavy grooves, amazing musicians. I think the vocals may be a little harsh for for my taste. Um, I do own their, I think it's their 1989 album, Beneath the Remains. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I'll have that on I don't really know I'll be uh, candid I don't know too many quote-unquote hair metal bands from Brazil I do I do have an album by a group I think that's fairly new called Lipstick um, and I think they're from Brazil and of course I know Stevie Rochelle's uh, band that he led vocals to uh, Tales from the Porn in Brazil Mm -hmm. Uh, but other than that uh, not really. I don't know. Is it is it a popular genre there? Are there a lot of new music uh, that sounds like that?
0: One thing that caught my attention too was the the way you, you tell the stories that you you tell most of them by memory and uh, and didn't you didn't do some interviews or anything like that. Uh, I I read that you chose to do this because it was a fan's point of view, and then, uh, maybe you could talk a little more about this 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 point of view that you put in the book
2: yeah certainly i mean i did want to write it from a fan's point of view because i wanted the book to be authentic um you know i think if it just would have been a collection of you know uh, some stories that anybody can read or some sales figures or some album titles or you know some celebrity-based events i mean any researcher could have wrote that book or anybody can go out on wikipedia and read about the bands Um, But I really wanted it to be more than that. I wanted it to be written from someone that that had a passion for the music and that lived through it and that is still living through it. Um, So I I purposely didn't do a lot of research, per se. Uh, You know, luckily, I didn't need to do much. Uh, Being a huge fan of the genre, uh, you know, a lot of this I have in my memory is probably the only thing I have in my memory, for better or worse. Uh, But, you know, I've read so many books and so many magazines and so many interviews and Uh, Just, I mean, I've got over 2000 hair metal CDs upstairs in in the den. Uh, So, you know, a lot of it didn't need research. I think the only things I had to look up were, you know, maybe specific sales figures or, you know, specific album release dates. Like I may have remembered that a certain album sold three or 4 million copies and not seven or 8 million, but I didn't remember the exact number. Or, you know, for example, I, I knew the, certainly the year and probably even the month albums were released, but I didn't know the specific day. Uh, so I did cheat and look that stuff up. And some of the quotes, I reference a lot of quotes from the bands, uh, not from my own personal interviews, well, a couple from my own personal interviews, uh, but mostly from, from things I had read in, in magazines or things I had read in articles or other interviews. Um, so I remembered them, but a, a number of them I did look up uh, just to make sure I got their quote exactly right. I didn't want to misquote anybody. But yeah, for the most part, uh, you know, I'm lucky my memory served me well on this book yes very good
0: and uh one thing that caught my attention too was that it was hard to find you in your internet uh because uh, you i think you only use facebook and it uh, d- doesn't appear in the other social medias uh why is that don't, don't you think <laughs> that you could promote more the book if you did so
2: well, absolutely. I, I, you know, I have a confession to make. <laughs> I am not good at social media. Uh, prior to the book, um, I had no social media and I mean none, uh, no Facebook, no Twitter, no Instagram and no whatever else I don't even know about. There probably are other things. Uh, so it is something I, I just really never had any interest in. Um, but writing the book, I said, Hey, I have to have some kind of social media presence. So I did the probably the bare minimum, right? I have a Facebook page. I do have a website, uh, www.com uh, hair So I put that up, but, uh, for the most part, you know, I'm not good at social media and, and probably to the extent the book needs to be marketed, um, because it's self-published. I probably sell it short in that regard, yes. but you know, writing the book was hard and I enjoyed yes. it and I wanted to embrace it. Uh, social media for me is hard and I don't so much want to embrace it. <laughs> so, um, it's probably not something, um, any good at, Uh, but I try to get into some things. Like I have joined some groups on Facebook and that has helped give some exposure to it. And I've certainly met uh, a number of wonderful people who have given me some very, uh, very kind feedback. That's very much appreciated. Um, You know, I think there's a strong market for this type of material because there's certainly a lot of fans. Like I mm-hmm. said, you know, there were seventy-five to 90,000 fans that were going to go to the stadium tour in, in 15 cities. I'd, I'd have to think that some of those people would be interested in a book like this. I'm probably not doing a good job of reaching them and letting them know it exists. Uh, but maybe that's some work for me to be done in the future.
0: Yeah, but uh, 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 what you see is that uh, it, it, your book has a way of getting to people because in my case, I was uh, surfing through Metal Sludge the Steve Rochelle that you mentioned. And then there was a long time that I didn't go to his website. And then I saw the ads about the book and I said, oh, and then I saw the book was from 2020. And I said, oh my God, how can it be? And then it was on on Kingdom Unlimited, which I had, so it was perfect. So I think that maybe Hermano, your book, like the general, has a way of of being alive and getting to people no matter what. So that was funny to see. (laughs)
2: we'll see I certainly hope so you know I wrote it for you know fans of the music right it is certainly not nothing I did to you know embark on a career in writing or to make a lot of money off it not there's any money to be had in writing books anyway or at least books about hair metal Um, but you know it's really the book I always wanted someone else to write so I could read it (laughs) Uh, as a fan of hair metal this is what I wanted to read and uh, you know I hope that people get some appreciation out of it for sure
0: Yes, very good.
2: And do you have any plans of doing something similar? Yeah, I mean, it's, it was a different time, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, um, you see interviews with some of the bands today and or even take a movie. Did you see the movie uh, The Dirt? Motley Yeah, right? mm-hmm. yeah, I
0: read the book before and, and now I saw the
2: movie. Yeah, great book. Terrific yeah. book. Loved it. Yes. Uh, you know, enjoyed the movie. I thought it was difficult uh, from a, a hardcore fan's perspective mm-hmm. to you know, deal with the, the very short running order because the movie yeah. left out so much and, and actually had some things that that weren't exactly the truth. Uh, but anyway, you know, Motley Crue was talking about, you know, fans saying younger people saw that movie, some of them, and they said, I can't believe that it was, this has to be false. It couldn't have been like this, uh, <laughs> you know, a time when really, you know, the 80s, it was all about excess and anything goes and, you know, for better or worse, uh, probably for the worse. I mean, there was no political correctness or anything. And, Uh, you know you you probably just we're not going to get that exact environment again so you know uh, I saw an interview with the guitarist from Warrant and and, you know he was saying hey hair metal was about trying to have fun right and give a sense Mm -hmm. of escapism and give people something to do other than to you know be immersed in their their nine-to-five job and to let off a little steam and you know he said bands today they don't have that same allure. Uh, you know, they're not having the same level of fun, per se. That's yes. uh, not to say all that fun was a good thing, but uh, it is different nowadays.
0: Do they even have rock stars anymore? Disney said that uh, once, and I completely agree with him. I want to see a rock star on stage. I don't want to see someone wearing those, those clothes that I see everybody wearing on the street.
2: <laughs> yes, there's certainly a shortage of, of rock stars, right? Yeah. And I think that was part of, you know, what ushered the era out to some extent. Uh, you know, there was a certain generation of younger people, especially as we moved into the 90s. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, the style of clothing. You know, mm-hmm. I think they could certainly appreciate the, these large spectacles and these extravaganzas and big lighting festivals that these concerts were. But a generation came about that they couldn't relate to it. Right. They couldn't see themselves as that um yeah grunge bands came out and you know they looked like these kids right they dressed the same way they came from the same background Uh, a lot of them you know came right out of their garage playing three chords Mm -hmm. and suddenly they had a band overnight so uh that generation of kids could relate to that they could see them on stage and they heard them singing about things that they experienced whether it was uh you know anxiety or angst or, or depression you know the 90s was a different socio and political economic time. You know, in the 80s, things were booming and things were good and things were happy. Uh, you know, it was a different time in the 90s. And I think younger kids couldn't relate to that anymore. You know, they wanted to relate to something that looked more like them and sounded more like them and, and felt like they were feeling. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it would, it would be something to get back to that. Yeah,
0: I understand this. I, I just don't, don't see why, but it's about the industry. That uh, you only have to have one of the genres. You, you, they had to wipe out her metal completely to get drunk. That's something I, I don't understand. But I, of course, they had th- this generation had the right to have their own music. It was it was okay to have that music.
2: Well, that was exactly it. Uh, you know, Ooh. people were probably ready for a change, or some people were ready for a change. You know, all genres uh, come and go. Um, but you're right, the industry you know, really had just a big uh, of a part to play in killing the genre as anything. Um, because you're right, they couldn't support two things. Uh, you know, almost overnight, uh, you know, yes. a band like Trickster had uh, three straight number one videos on the old Dial MTV program. Um, and their last one was Surrender, right? Three straight number one videos. And then in 1992, uh, MTV decided they were going to embrace grunge and they, they completely canceled Dial MTV and they completely turned their back on hair metal. And, you know, Trickster, who just a week later had a number one video, uh, was never played on MTV again, period. It was completely done. And, you know, they could only sell one thing. Uh, Mm. When Grunge first came out, you know, and it wasn't called Grunge then, um, you know, I remember hearing Alice in Chains' Facelift album and the the opening single, uh, the opening track, uh, We Die Young, and I thought it was cool, right? You know, it was different than Poison, but I liked it. But I didn't know that I was people were going to have to choose between the two. Uh, (laughs) Even when, you know, I went to see Van Halen in concert in 1991 and they had Alice in Chains opening up for them, right? (laughs) Because it was all rock and roll. You know, it wasn't yet these two combating things, Uh, but who can imagine today that Alice in Chains ever went on tour with Van Halen?
0: (laughs) Yes, uh, we only got to see warrants in 1997 in a very small club in Sao Paulo, not even Rio de Janeiro, they only went to Sao Paulo and then in, in the encore there was a, a band that opened for them and the vocalist joined the stage with Jane Lane and then they sang, sang "Men in the Box. It was so strange to see Jane Lane sing this song. I said, oh my God, what's happening? Because there was nothing like that. Although they had already uh, released the belly-to-belly and ultra but it was so strange. It, it, It didn't fit. Well,
2: yeah, you know, I I honestly I've seen Janie Lane perform many times and I yeah. admit I've never seen him sing Man in the Box I might have to look that up
0: I think they are on YouTube. I'm going to send you this this video. I think you're, uh, okay. I'll have to be sitting yeah.
2: down when I watch that
0: yeah. <laughs> Uh, and what about Charlotte? Uh, you, you, got, you always it there. You got to see a lot of the shows. Even what I think it's cool that you saw the really the peak and the, the bottom of the bands because you got to see uh, them, them live in all the ages. Uh, in Charlotte, they, all the bands went to go to do shows, etc.
2: Yeah, it is as part of the uh, the neat aspect of it, because you're right, back in the, the mid and, and late 80s and even in the early 90s, um, mm-hmm. you know, I was seeing these bands in arenas, you know, 35,000 seat arenas. And mm-hmm. then in the, the 90s, particularly the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, you were seeing these bands in bars that hold 350 people. Mm-hmm. Right? When you saw Skid Row in an arena in 1989, and then you were basically standing right next to Sebastian Bach in the front row, or Janie Lee, mm-hmm. or Rat uh, in a bar in 1997. Uh, you probably <laughs> never would have thought that would happen. Yeah, <laughs> but um, you know, I don't certainly don't get to as many concerts now as I, I do when I was younger. Yeah, as course. And, uh, you know, Charlotte is not really uh, a hard rock scene to speak of. Not that there's any real hard rock scene. Yes. yes. I mean, the, the predominant yeah, even Los <laughs> Angeles. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess that, would maybe head to Los Angeles if you want to sniff out any remnants of it, or, or perhaps in, in Las Vegas. Uh, yeah. But in the U.S., at least for the past twenty years, I mean, the overwhelmingly predominant genres of music have been, uh, you know, of course, pop music is always there, but really hip hop and country. Uh, You know, and and rock and roll to the extent people classify things as rock and roll has gone through different stages. You know, there was the there was grunge in the 90s. There was new metal in the late 90s. And then there was kind of, you know, what I would classify uh, probably overly critically is just generic rock after that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, Charlotte is more of a a country town or or hip hop closer to the city. Uh, Even bands that do, you know, 30 or 40 city tours across the U.S. now. Uh, they, they don't often come to Charlotte for sure uh, it's not a big tourist attraction like New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, San Francisco, mm-hmm. Boston, Miami, something like that uh, but you know hey if you, if you want to raise a family as you get older Charlotte's a nice place to be. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it probably is uh, maybe uh, as I, I said in May we, uh, we only got to Charlotte because once I, I was coming back from Orlando and then the flight passed through but only the airport was a shame I'd like to know the city. But maybe one day. (laughs) It's
2: a nice place. If you're ever in town, look me up for sure.
0: Okay, great, great. Uh, Chris, thank you very much for your time and sharing your stories. Uh, You sure did uh, uh, a document of Hermero with your book. It was very fun to read and, and, and very good to know a lot of some stories that some I knew, some I didn't know. And some uh, I got to know better. So it was very good. And probably you are helping her metal uh, stay alive uh, above
2: all the (laughs) ages. Oh, Hey, I appreciate the kind words and I'm thrilled that you like the book. I really am. Um, I hope fans appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I'm happy with how it turned out for sure. Um, And and people have been kind enough to give me some really nice feedback, but I, I don't think, you know, as an author, I don't think I deserve any of it. You know, I think it's, it's the musicians, right? And the music they made uh, that really makes the book special, right? They deserve all the credit in terms of creating something really great that we can all talk about and read about and enjoy. So uh, my hat's off to the artists for sure.
0: Okay, so thank you very much. And maybe we got to talk again about other, other aspects and uh,
2: uh, see you. <laughs> okay, thank you for your kind support and I look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you, Chris, bye bye. Okay, good day.
0: language and culture